All right, please turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 8 through 16. Title to our message this morning is The King of On the Mountain. Exodus 17, starting in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. While Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. May God bless the preaching of his word. The grass withers, the flower fades. The word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Father, just as Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer before he went to the cross, that you would sanctify your people with the truth, that your word is truth. We pray that you would sanctify us now. Lord, we know that your word is efficacious, that it always affects that which you have sent it to do. So, Lord, cause us to move one degree of glory closer to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. If you're just now joining us in this series, we have seen that the history of Israel in the book of Exodus has also simultaneously been a prophecy of Jesus Christ. You can't read Exodus as mere history. Jesus told us we can't. In John 5:46, he said, "When Moses wrote, he wrote about me." And we've seen this over and over again. Uh, when God rained down bread from heaven in Exodus 16, it was a foreshadowing. It was a type of Jesus, the true bread who came down from heaven to give life to the world, John 6.32. In other words, Exodus 16 taught us about the incarnation, the God-man who came into the world for the sake of sinners. 
Next, in Genesis, at Exodus 17, 1 through 7, when God told Moses to strike the rock, it was a foreshadowing, a type of Jesus being punished for sins at the crucifixion. When Christ was struck, out came the living water of the Holy Spirit. And this morning, um, here we find yet perhaps another strange account. How are we to understand these things here? How does this fit into the gospel story? Why did Moses go up to the top of the hill? Uh, Why did he sit down? Why did Israel prevail when he lifted up his hands with the staff of God in his hand? Children, boys and girls, especially want to ask you, what do you think is happening here? Uh, Are we to think like some pagan commentators that Moses is like Gandalf here? That he's like some wizard with a long beard and a wizard staff in his hand and he's conjuring magic to save Israel. Is that what we are to think of this passage? No. What Moses is doing here is a sign. It's a type of something far, far greater. And something that is to our greatest advantage today. So let's look, first of all then, at our doctrine this morning. Look at verse 8 with me. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel... At Rephidim. Now, notice that the people of Amalek were the very first clan that came out to fight Israel after their redemption from Egypt. So, who were the Amalekites? Well, they were descendants of Esau, uh, Jacob's brother. Amalek was a grandson of Esau, Genesis 36 12. That little piece of data is really important. Why did they attack? Well, commentators give a couple of reasons. One, Amalek fought Israel for water rights. Remember, Israel was just given this supply of water from God at the Rock of Horeb. And in Scripture, fighting over water wells was a a major occurrence. You see that in Genesis 21-25, 26-19, Exodus 2-17, Numbers 20-19. Two, Amalek fought Israel for revenge. Remember that Jacob, the father of the 12 tribes, uh, had cheated Esau out of his birthright. He had stolen Esau's blessing from Isaac, their father, Genesis 17, or 27, 18 through 29. So this tack represents revenge for that. Now, I think there are merit to both of those reasons. But I actually think that there's a deeper significance behind this warfare. In Romans 9, Paul teaches on both election, which is those that God saves, and reprobation, those that God damns. And he says this in Romans 9, 13, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Amalek, a descendant of Esau, represents the reprobate, the seed of the serpent that is always attacking God's people. And we don't even have to go to Romans 9 to see this. In Deuteronomy 25, God brings up this account again before they go into the promised land. He tells them, 
In Deuteronomy 25, 17, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Amalek did not fear God. They worshiped idols. They worshiped demons. They were the reprobate. So take that in. After Israel was freed from this bondage and slavery, they were thrust into this new battle that was both physical and spiritual. And so this battle then was to be fought on two fronts. It was to be fought on the ground, and it was to be fought on the mountain. So consider first the battle on the ground. Look at verse 9. This is the battle on the ground. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Moses chose Joshua to lead in the ground attack, and this is the first time that we come across his name in Scripture. It means Jehovah is salvation. He's going to play a prominent role with Israel as he leads them into the promised land after, Israel's, after Moses' death. He was chosen to fight Amalek. Now, how many men did he have at his disposal? Well, Numbers 1, 45 and 46 says that there were 603, 550,000 men who were able to go to war. That's a lot of men. Seems that the whole number did not fight since Joshua was only to choose some of them. But think about it. Even if only a quarter of those men were chosen to fight, it would have still been a massive battle bigger than the invasion on the beaches of Normandy at D-Day. But there's a more decisive battle taking place than on the ground. And this is the battle on the mountain. Look halfway through verse 9. Moses says, tomorrow I will stand, meaning I will, I will take my station on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Moses ascended to the top of this hill so that he could see all the battle and so that all of Israel could see him. And he'd be holding that staff of God in his hand, the same staff that was used to strike down Egypt. Matthew Henry says here, quote, this rod that Moses held up to Israel to animate them, the rod was held up as a banner to encourage the soldiers. So just like American soldiers fight under the red, white, and blue, so these Israelites saw the staff of God and that was their banner. That was their flag. Look at verse 10. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek, while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So Aaron, Moses' brother, joins him, and so does this man named Hur. According to Josephus, Hur was the husband of Moses' sister, Miriam. So God's people were stationed on the ground, and these three brothers are up on the hill taking their station. So what happens? How do these two battlefronts work together? Well, verse 11 tells us, whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek 
prevailed. What is this action of Moses' lifting up his hands? What does that, what does that signify? It signifies prayer. Moses was praying for Israel. Elsewhere in Scripture, the lifting up of hands and the prayer to God are enjoined together. So Psalm 28.2, hear the voice of my pleas for mercy. He's, he's praying. When I lift up my hands towards your most holy sanctuary. And then Paul says the same thing in 1 Timothy 2.8. He says, I desire that in every place that men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So this lifting up of hands was prayer. When Moses was praying, Israel prevailed. When he stopped, Amalek prevailed. In Israel's very first battle, God wanted them to see that, number one, they would have to fight. But number two, that victory did not depend upon them, but upon what was happening in the upper world, on the mountain. Verse 12. But Moses' hand grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. When Moses was interceding by himself, his hands grew weary, and so he sat down on this stone seat. He was then helped by his brothers, one on one side, one on the other, helping him to intercede. And then we see this victory. So end of verse 12, his hands were steady then until the going down of the sun. What was the result of this mysterious work on the mountain? We'll look at verse 13. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Joshua and Israel were victorious. They defeated their enemies. As Moses interceded on the stone seat, Israel got the victory. And all of this is a type that teaches us something far, far greater. Children, boys and girls... Why do you think that God teaches us through types, through pictures? Why do you think God sent manna down from heaven to teach us about Jesus' incarnation? Why do you think God had Moses strike the rock to teach us about Jesus' crucifixion? Because these pictures help us to understand complex doctrines. Uh, God uses visible things to teach us invisible realities. Types help us to taste and see the beauty and power of the doctrine. So manna tastes like wafers with honey because there's nothing sweeter than the God-man who came down to earth. The rock was struck and living water came out because when Christ was punished for us, we were made to never thirst again. So what is the type that is pictured here? What does Moses on the mountain teach us? Teaches us the session of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that brings us to our doctrine this morning. Christ Session 
includes his sitting at the right hand of the throne of God, scepter in hand, making continual intercession for us and defeating every enemy in this age. The word session comes from the Latin word sessio, which means the act of sitting. Christ's session is the act of him sitting down. Moses sitting on the mountain is a type of Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven. Consider four parallels between Moses' session and Christ in this passage. Parallel number one, Christ was set on a hill. Christ was set on a hill. Turn with me to Psalm 2. Twice in our passage, Moses ascended to the top of a hill. He didn't do it twice. It's mentioned twice. After Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. And look what the psalmist calls this. He calls it a holy hill. Psalm 2, verse 6. God the Father here says of the Son, As for me, I have set my king, that's Christ, on Zion, my holy hill. If you want to know what Psalm 2 is about, it's about the session of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Verse 8 Uh, The Father gives him authority over the nations. Verse 9, he's to use his rod against those who rebel. And all of this was done on a holy hill, just as Moses fought Amalek from the top of that hill in Rephidim. Parallel 2, Christ sat down at the right hand of God. Christ sat down on the right hand of God. Please turn with me to Psalm 110. When Moses' arms grew weary, they grew heavy, he sat down on the stone seat. And when Christ finished his weary and heavy work of redemption, God gave him a throne to sit down on. Look at verse 1, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You ever wonder what this weird language is? The Lord said to my Lord, this scene is the Father is speaking to the Son after he ascended into heaven and he says, take a seat at my right hand. This psalm is quoted in the New Testament more than 20 times, more than any other passage in the Old Testament, and it uniformly teaches about the session of Christ. Just as Moses sat on the mountain, so Christ sat at the right hand of God. Parallel three. Christ is interceding for all the saints. Christ is interceding for all the saints. Turn with me to to, to Romans 8, 34. Romans 8, 34. Moses was not just sitting there taking a break while the, the soldiers were fighting down below. He was very active. He was interceding for all of Israel. And so it is with Christ in his session. 2,000 years ago, he began interceding for all the people of God. Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Moses prayed until the sun went down. Jesus is praying to the end of the age. He ever lives to intercede for us, Hebrews 7, 25. Finally, parallel number four, Christ is defeating every enemy. Christ is defeating every enemy. Please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15, 
24 and 25. What did Moses' prayers accomplish? The defeat of the Amalekites. What will Christ's prayers during his session accomplish? The defeat of every enemy. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 and 25. Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Just as Moses' hands were steady until the Amalekites were overwhelmed, so Christ in his session will be faithful and steady until every enemy is defeated. Now, certainly, um, you might be looking at the text, well, what about this detail? What about that detail? What about this? What about that? Well, types don't perfectly represent the thing that they signify. Otherwise, they would be the thing itself. Uh, Calvin says here, he agrees that it's a type of Christ, but he says the resemblance does not hold in every single part. The point here is to see the vivid imagery that's taking place, how vital the session of Christ is. Listen to what the late R.C. Sproul says on this point. When we study the life and work of Jesus, we discover moments of supreme importance. These include his birth, his death on the cross, his resurrection, the day of Pentecost and his return. However, there is an element in the work of Christ that we almost completely overlook. It is the session of Jesus Christ. Churches that use the Presbyterian form of church government are led by elders who collectively constitute what is called the session. The body of elders is known as the session because when they meet to deliberate, to establish policy, to give supervision to the spiritual lives of the church members under their care, they sit down and discuss these things. Likewise, when we say that Congress is in session, we mean that our representatives are assembled and in their seats, ready to transact the business of the United States. But the most important session of all is the session of Jesus Christ in heaven. When Yahweh said to David's Lord, sit at my right hand, he was saying, be seated in the highest place of authority in the universe. Children, boys and girls, especially you really, really little children, look at your bulletins. Look at the back of them. Look at what Mrs. Bridget put on there. It's a picture of Moses sitting on the mountain and the soldiers dying down below. That is a picture, a vivid imagery of Christ in his session, in this age, praying over the people of God and defeating every enemy. So that's our doctrine. Let's look now to our our duty. There's some hard stuff in here that we haven't even looked at yet. And our duty is is basically to consider what the fate of the reprobate is. Look at verses 14 through 16 and note the several denunciations God makes against the Amalekites. First, this event 
was to be written in Scripture. Verse 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book. So significant was this event that this is the first place where God commands Moses to write Scripture, and it's here. Second, this event was to be preached on, continuing in verse 14, and recite it in the ears of Joshua. Joshua, being the next leader of Israel, would have to be taught these things and preached on, and then he would pass that down to the people of Israel. Thirdly, God pronounced the dreadful sentence. Look at the end of verse 14. That I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. This meant annihilation. This is the same language that's used in the pre-Diluvian world that God would blot out everybody who didn't get on the ark. Fourthly, Moses built an altar in remembrance of this event. Verse 15, Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner. In Hebrew, the name is Jehovah Nisi. Nisi means a flag or a banner. These flags were set on hills uh, as a signal of war. And here, it's a flag of victory because Israel was now under Jehovah's protection. Fifthly, And finally, what this altar means for the Amalekites. Look at verse 16. Saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have have war with Amalek from generation to generation. The commentators don't agree on what this first clause means. A hand upon the throne. Some think that it means that God himself is placing his hand on the throne and he's swearing that they're going to be destroyed. Others think that Amalek, because they attacked God's people, they assaulted God's authority and sovereignty. But either way, the last clause makes it clear what the intent is, that Jehovah is going to have war against the Amaleks from generation to generation. And dear congregation, I, I, I don't know how, you, how much you know that this shapes the rest of Scripture. 400 years later, when King Saul is on the throne, God commands him in 1 Samuel 15, 1 through 3, to destroy all the Amalekites. He didn't. Um, A thousand years later, God orchestrated his secret providence in the book of Esther to have Haman the Agagite who was an Amalekite, hung on his own gallows along with his 10 sons. All of this comes from Exodus 17. And here's the hard bit. Because someone's going to say, wait a second. Doesn't scripture say that children shall not be put to death for the sins of their fathers? But each one shall be put to death for his own sin, Deuteronomy 24, 16. Someone might say, if God is going to war against Amalek's children who aren't even born yet, doesn't that mean they're being punished for the sins of their fathers? No. Think carefully. Scripture says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that the wages of sin is death. So the human race is entirely condemned. And anyone who, who is not extended the free saving grace of God 
will fall under that condemnation forever. That's what God starts with after the fall. Calvin says here, therefore, when God punishes the wicked for their crimes by depriving their families of grace for many generations, the only way in which they are cursed for their father's wickedness is being blinded and abandoned by God and so left to walk in their parents' steps. Thus their punishments inflicted by divine justice are not for the sins of others, but for their own iniquity. In other words, the generations that followed, they walked in their father's sins by their own volition. God, all he did was merely withhold the grace that they would have needed to avoid it and change course. There's no record in the scripture that I could find of one Amalekite ever being saved. And that's significant because other enemies of God are. Remember the Egyptians, how wicked they were against the Israelites? In Isaiah 19, God calls them my people. The Assyrians later on bring them into captivity. He says, Assyria, my people, Egypt, my people. But not one of the Amalekites. Why? Because they're a type of the reprobate. God is justly severe with them. He justly withholds saving grace. He leaves them under the condemnation of their own sins. Do you realize what the reprobate are? These are those who who have their names blotted out of the book of life, Revelation 20, 15. These, These are those who are thrown into the lake of fire, who suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. I mean, there's, there's nothing more dreadful, there's nothing more frightening than to think about the reprobate and the future that they have. It's the most frightening thing in all of the Bible, to fall into the hands of the living God. And God right here is trotting it out for us to see, generation to generation, he says. So why does God show us this? How does this help us? Because it displays the riches of his mercy. Loved ones, we are God's beloved people. We have been chosen by free grace. And we forget how precious that is. If we had the doctrine of free grace in our minds all the time. I doubt we would ever fight at all. I bet we would be instantly sanctified. It's that powerful of a doctrine. How can we complain and argue and fight over anything if we knew, if we remembered, if we held on to, if we treasured the fact that God saved us apart from any merit of our own? The pinnacle of of Paul's argument in Romans 9 is that God is the potter and that he can do with his clay whatever he wants to. Listen to this stunning sentence that, that Paul says in Romans 9, 22 and 23. What if God, he almost, he puts it like in the hypothetical so that we could let our imagination flow. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order 
to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. God wants us to know how precious his love and mercy and grace are. And one way that he hammers that home into our hearts is he shows us the fate of the reprobate. It magnifies what free grace is. It's going to be a monument for all eternity. Listen to what Jonathan Edwards says. When the saints in heaven shall look upon the damned in hell, it will serve to give them a greater sense of their own happiness. When they shall see how dreadful the anger of God is, it will make them the more prize his love. They will rejoice the more that they are not objects of God's anger, but of his favor, that they are not subjects of his dreadful wrath, but are treated as his children to dwell in the everlasting embraces of his love. To connect this to our passage, we could say that one reason why God waged war against the Amalekites from generation to generation is so that we could see how precious God's saving mercy on us is, how excellent the love of Christ is, how costly the indwelling spirit is. Loved ones, God showed you mercy. God showed us mercy. What did you do this morning to deserve one ounce, one drop of saving mercy? He could have decided from eternity past to let us walk in the sins of our forefathers just to give us up to those same exact sins and be damned, but he didn't. And this is why the scripture can't help but break out. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we would be called the children of God. Oh, behold, the love of Jehovah Nisi. His banner over us is love. That's all it is, is love. Song of Solomon 2.4, he brought me to his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. Not sentimental love, blood-bought love. Love that is based on the free election of the Father. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jehovah Nisi has claimed us by his own free grace, by the blood of his son, by the unbreakable seal of his spirit. That's why he trots this out. And that's our duty that we would contemplate, that we would carefully consider the fate of the reprobate so that we would see the preciousness of saving grace. Let's look to our delight. Our delight is this. Because Christ is in session... We're fighting a battle we cannot lose. We can never lose. We do have to fight. Um, Before Israel was redeemed, they did no fighting. They were enslaved. God did all the fighting. In fact, at the sea, when they were pinned up against 
it by the Egyptians. He says, don't fight. You wait there. I'm fighting for you. But now it's changed. As Israel travels to the promised land, this represents our sanctification, and they have to go to battle. Verse 9, Moses tells Joshua, choose for us men and go fight. In our sanctification, we have to fight. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith. So a few questions. Number one, what are we to fight? What is it that we're fighting? Certainly we're to fight against our own flesh. A.W. Pink, in his sermon on this passage, sees that Israel's battle against Amalek is the battle of the, the flesh against the spirit. And certainly that is true, generally speaking. But there's more than that here. Why did God call Israel out of Egypt? For what purpose? For his own glory. That's always the right answer, right? For his own glory. How specifically is he going to be glorified in Israel coming out of Egypt? To be a light to the nations, to establish justice on the earth. Go read Isaiah 42 this week and see that what God's original plan for Israel was, was to be a light to the nations. And guess what we're called? The light of the world. Jesus said of his disciples, of us, Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. Amalek represents the darkness, the spirit of the age that has no fear of God. It seeks to steal and kill and destroy. And Christians must fight against that. Christianity isn't a call to retreat. When Amalek came, he didn't say, hey, go run and hide. Christianity is a call to action. It's, it's a call to disciple the nations. That's precisely what Jesus said in the Great Commission, right before he ascended into heaven. He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and disciple the nations. Christianity is a public religion. Paul said as an apostle in Romans 1.5 that his aim was to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. How are we to fight? That's the second question. What are we to fight? Is it against the, the spirit of this age? How are we to fight? With the means that God gives us, the word of God. Look at verse 13. Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Again, a type here. What, what does a sword represent to us? Well, in Ephesians 6, when, God is telling the Christ, or when Paul is telling uh, those in Ephesus to put on the armor of God, he tells them to take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. See, Christianity is not like Islam. We're not called to convert the nations through bloodshed. Our weapons are not carnal. Our weapon is the living and active word of God, Hebrews 4.13. Do you realize, just read your Bible, try to read your Bibles with fresh eyes. Go to the book of Acts. See that when the word of God was preached, it absolutely transformed the ancient Roman world. So much so that the pagans were crying out in Acts 17.6, these men, these preachers of the word, they have turned the world upside down. That's what the word does. The word can turn the world upside down. 
we fight with the word. We fight with, thus says the Lord. And the Amalekites of this age cannot stand up underneath it. So, loved ones, use the word. Wield it. Pull it out of its sheath. Learn how to swing it. Go in the Bible and look how the word of God is used in the public sphere. And use it like that. And swing that sword. 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10.4, just to reiterate the point that our weapons are not physical. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. Clown world is a stronghold right now. And the only thing that will destroy it is the unleashed word of God. Finally, the last question What are our motives for fighting? What are our motives for fighting? Well, first, because Christ is in session, we are fighting a battle that we cannot lose. When our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, when he was buried, when he rose from the dead, he didn't merely ascend into heaven like others before him. When he ascended into heaven, the Father seated him at his right hand, and he gave him all authority. Just as Moses had authority on the battlefield at Rephidim, so Jesus has all authority in heaven. In his heavenly session, Jesus is not idle. He has constant activity. He he is working, and his work is always efficacious, which means it doesn't fail. I mean, again, think of the imagery. Moses lifted up his hands, and it changed everything on the battlefield. When Jesus intercedes in heaven... The Father answers his every prayer, every single prayer. Do you ever feel like sometimes God is not answering your prayer? Jesus never has that feeling, ever. Every desire that he brings before the Father, the Father answers him and says, yes, amen. Why? Because every prayer is based on the atoning work of the cross. Every prayer that he gives is bought in blood. It's singed with the fires of hell. And so he has the full assurance that everything that he prays for, the Father will accomplish. And this means that we can't lose. Satan is on Jesus' leash. Kings are deposed and kings are raised up at Jesus' say-so. The dead are raised when Jesus prays for it. When When he said, Lazarus, come forth, Lazarus came forth. When the nations rage against him, is Jesus up there biting his nails? No, Psalm 2 says he's laughing in the heavens. He's laughing. Loved ones, Christ is in session. We're fighting a battle that we can't lose. Secondly, our last motive is that we fight because Christ, Jehovah Nisi, has promised to be a banner for all nations. Jehovah Nisi has promised to be a banner for all nations. In our announcements this morning, we heard about the Jesse tree. And as Matt and BJ pointed out, this came from Isaiah 11. Isaiah 11.1, a branch is going to come forth from Jesse. 
That's Jesus. That's Jesus in his first coming. And then a few verses later, it talks about the root of Jesse, branch to root. Well, now it's focusing on that Jesus is not just a descendant. He's the source of Jesse. He's the God-man. And in this age, do you know what the root of Jesse is promising? In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a signal. It's the same word we get for Nisi. He'll stand as a signal for the peoples. Of him shall all the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. That's, that's the promise of Christ in this age, that Jehovah Nisi is the banner over all nations, and they will come and inquire of him. That's one of the things that he's praying for right now, that the nations would come that God promised him, Psalm 2.8. So we go into battle knowing that Christ is already praying for the prize. He came and died. He rose again to save the world. And now he sits in heaven interceding, finishing that work with his constant prayers. Men and women will look to him and be saved. Since he now sits on the throne, the gospel will go forth. It's an invincible reality. So if you're listening right now and you're you're still on the side of Amalek, and I plead with you, renounce your loyalties, lay down your arms, come to Jehovah Nisi, come to the Lord Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of of the Father, believe in his name, because if you do, the king on the mountain will save you, and he will fight for you to the end of the age. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for all the great chapters in your redemptive story of the incarnation of Christ's active and passive obedience, his crucifixion, his burial, his glorious resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven. But Lord, we especially thank you for his session. We thank you for this imagery of Moses sitting on the mountain. We thank you for this type that beautifies and glorifies this perhaps abstract doctrine that you right now, Lord Jesus, are in heaven interceding on our behalf, that we don't have to guess it, that we don't have to imagine it, but we know it's invincibly true. So Lord, help us to look to our banner. Help us to look to that ensign, to that flag, to that standard. And bring more people home. May the nations inquire of you as just as you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen.